Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from TuiCR in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia, on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device, across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn. Today I'm joined by Australian writer, columnist, media commentator and radio host, Dominic Knight. Best known as one of the Chaser Boys, Dom is also one of Australia's best known satirists and has penned a new book, his seventh, called The 2020 Dictionary, The Definitive Guide to the Year the World Turned to Shit. It's in all good bookstores and right now Dom joins me in studio. Dominic Knight, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hello. Uh, Now, look, there's so much in this book that I forgot had even happened this year because from the word go, 2020 seemed to give good copy for the headlines. Yeah, or or awful (laughs) awful experiences, whatever you want to look at. Well, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the year started out with catastrophic bushfires and and floods then followed. There were multiple fallouts within the royal family. Oh, yeah. A hotly contested democratic primary in the States, a, a presidential impeachment trial and then subsequent acquittal and all the while the year's biggest story was brewing in the background and then it erupted in mid-March. Given the material 2020 had already given us before March, did you actually decide that the year was in dire need of a dictionary pre-pandemic or? No, no, no. <laughs> if this was something I was thinking about, um, I guess May, June and then July I kind of got into it. So it was a tricky thing because I had to work out how to pitch it. Um, I guess from a sort of publishing perspective, how do you actually, I mean, I'd done a few books in this sort of satirical reference uh, style. I did the Australian Dictionary last year, having fun with the kind of Australian language. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I didn't want to do a COVID book and um, that would just be, that would have been too depressing. And then people were starting to say, oh, it's so 2020 that this happens or what a perfect 2020 end of this story or something. And 2020 be- became shorthand for things going badly, mm. almost like the sort of Murphy's Law concept, you know, anything that can go wrong will go wrong is now it's so 2020. And so I thought, well, maybe just a 2020 dictionary. That would be interesting because that would let us have the fun as well as the endless tragedy and despair and unpleasantness. Um, and I, I don't think that's off limits to humour, but you obviously you've got to be careful with how you discuss things like Black Lives Matter, which I play mm. fairly straight in the book mm-hmm. because there's not anything funny there. It's more the attempts to suppress protests and things like that. But I thought 2020 was actually a good organising principle for a dictionary. And in the past, we did Chaser Annual Books, um, which collected the, the year's news stories. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, why not collect the year's words? That might be an interesting read. Well, we've certainly got a, a lot of new ones. There's been quarantini and job seeker, job keeper, mm. um, words that really would have meant nothing to us about 12 months ago. Uh, did you partake in any quarantinis? Or? Oh, look, um, yes. <laughs> you could get them in tin cans at one point. Could you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they were already there. It was a, it was a, quar- it was a martini um, oh, from okay. a bar in uh, in Newtown that, that delivers them. But right. yeah, the delivery cocktail, I think, is one of the great innovations of 2020. We really needed them. But um, yeah, one of the, one of the inspirations for the book was definitely thinking about the new language that was coming mm. along the pipeline. And um, whereas previously I'd looked at the words that were, I guess, legendary in, in Australian slang and mm. things that everyone knew, with this it was more about collecting new things, neologisms. And um, I did a lot of reading. Uh, people made lists early in the year and I made sure I covered all of those words in some way. And then I would um, doom scroll one of my favourite new words of the year, which is going Ooh. obsessively going through social feeds, Twitter, Facebook, and just seeing every terrible thing that comes along. And in my case, I want to know everything about the US election, even the obscure counties in Georgia and Arizona and find out what the vote was going on there. I wanted to know about 
about the bushfires and where they were going, and that was sort of a work thing for me too at the time. But, you know, all these words came down the pipeline, and I made a note and thought, oh, this is a curious thing. A pyrocumulus cloud is a um, cloud that appears above a bushfire uh, where there's no rain. It's a storm cloud that's just ash and smoke, and lightning comes out of it and starts new bushfires, but it can't put the fires out because there's no rain. So it's a genuinely terrible 2020 yeah. thing to happen, this this um, pyrocumulus cloud. And we had a whole bunch of them during the, the summer bushfires. Um, so just these horrible little details, I guess it's black humour to some degree, mm. a black summer and black humour, um, to try and, and make content out of it. But... It was such a strange year that there was plenty to work with. And even since I, I put the pen down and had to p- publish the book, so much more has happened. I've, interesting you've included the Latin phrase, Annus Horribilis, which, <laughs> as I recall, really belongs to the year 1992. But uh, it's made it into 2020. Yeah, I think that was um, when uh, two or three of the, the royal uh, children got divorced yeah, and yeah. I think Windsor Castle burned down and, and stuff yeah. which by the standards of 2020 is actually really small potatoes. Mm. Um, and so it's I pretty was, unprecedented, I guess, that year because th- there well, weren't yes. really d- divorces in the royal family. No. It was commonplace. No, and I mean, marrying a divorcee, as we know from the Crown, was uh, yeah. was uh, not allowed at all. Yes, I wonder if it's been like, oh, this has actually been quite nice, not having to go around shake hands. No garden parties. Also, I mean, the thing is as well, they're not young. I mean, she's in her early 90s. I think Prince Philip's in his late 90s, getting Mm. towards 100. She's, I think, 94 now. Yeah, so it's getting up there. And, um, I mean, people that age, you just want to stay put. And um, Mm. they seem to enjoy rude health, the royals. I mean, her her mum went into the hundreds. So Mm -hmm. um, I guess we will see, uh, you know, with all these plans in place. It would be an awful end to 2020 if if the Queen were to, to, to pass away. But... (laughs) <laughs> Johnny, why don't we not get into that? Actually, let's cut this bit out. Um, but you just I, it, saw my has, face there. it has occurred to me when when I was thinking of everything possibly going on. But here's another thought. So I looked back and I actually wrote an article in 2016 about that being the worst year ever, mm. and the the criteria back then were that mm. a bunch of amusos, uh, you mm. know, um, legendary musicians had died, and that was very sad. Are we talking about in 2016? 2016, yeah. yeah. And that was, so everyone was saying, oh, is this the worst year ever? Mm. And compared to that, I mean, as much as I mourn people like Prince, mm-hmm. um, 2020 has been on a whole other scale of terribleness. Well, I do remember, I, I remember coming to the end of 2016, and we all sort of had, we were having the, those sort of similar conversations. Mm. Obviously, Prince had passed away, I think. Uh, David Bowie had passed away right at the start of the yeah, year. Yeah, there were a lot of people. Leonard, Leonard Cohen went mm. the week of the election. It was quite election. a procession, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was, I think, the other reason why people were sort of um, sort of cursing that year was, you know, the US election. Yeah, it was, there was Brexit. Brexit. Mm, yeah, there was a lot going on that year. So, yeah, there were certainly some political events that... Um, that well, Brexit's actually, I've noticed, it's made it uh, into the 2020 dictionary as well, but I guess you could include Brexit in a dictionary for any year from 2016. <laughs> I guess you you could. No, but the, the point being it hasn't happened yet. No. Um, they're still thrashing it out. But yeah. the other thing is I thought it was interesting because in a way that move to isolationism, now you can make a joke as I did that, you know, they will get ahead of the ISO trend um, with that idea, but also the notion of nationalism and exceptionalism and of your country not wanting to work with others and go it alone, mm. that spirit is part of what's made 2020 so disastrous. Um, the notion in the US that states compete for PPE and um, respirators rather than having an orderly process. And 
Britain, I think, has been disadvantaged um, or would have been disadvantaged if it was out of the EU medical um, grouping. It isn't yet. But, um, yeah, so this is not a helpful thing for the world. And so in a more serious sense, Brexit is a symptom of something bad. And cooperation and uh, borders being down is what is making the world more peaceful and and really work better. This year, borders went up everywhere and it hasn't been a good thing at all. Even though it, it was good in a health perspective, it, it, it's not a trend that we should welcome. No, no. Given the, the, the way trade talks are going between Boris and EU chief uh, Ursula von der Leyen, we should know more in the, in the first few weeks of 2021. What do you expect to, to see? Well, there are two options when Boris is involved. There's mm. never an option of being sensible, having good planning. Mm-hmm. There's either a screaming disaster or somehow pulling it out of his ass with a last-minute fluke. And he, that happens quite a lot. He he's very good at winging it. Yes, he's good say. at winging it, and yeah. he he's a he's a fairly remarkable man in some ways. I mean, uh, I think there are many jobs he would have done brilliantly, other than you know, mayor of London and prime minister. But um, yes, so he may figure something out, and it it seems hard to believe that they really would let no deal happen. But he's now trying to spin it as an Australia-style free trade agreement, which actually means not having one. Um, and we're negotiating one with the EU, so very soon it won't be an Australia-style agreement. But uh, he, he does seem to like us. He's always going on about Australia and Australian migration. Anyway, that's a bit of a footnote. But Boris Johnson is one of the many celebrities who got COVID. Yes. And just a few weeks before that. and there are One of the so many, many politicians who got COVID. Yes, there are so many examples of just the folly of people... Um, saying they weren't going to change what they were doing. He was saying, I'm not going to stop shaking hands. Why? Mm. Definitely. No way. Of course he should have. I mean, it's just idiocy. We knew this stuff. We were told by the much maligned WHO how to handle this stuff, and we didn't do it. And people thought they were special and different. And even after, I think Prince Charles got it well before Boris Johnson Mm. did, and then he was in ICU. He, He nearly died, and he named his kid after the doctors that saved him in the NHS. So then after him and Trump got it, you know, Giuliani got it, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil got it, a lot of world leaders got it. The Rock got it, even. I mean, even The Rock even the couldn't rock. defeat COVID. That. Yeah, his whole family got it. One of, I mean, my, I think one of the earliest was Tom Hanks, wasn't it? Um, that, and that was here in Australia. That was so strange, wasn't it? When A, Tom Hanks, like the, the nice guy of Hollywood has got it, but he got it in Australia. I mean, it... Technically, he got it in America and brought it to Australia. Right, okay. And one of the fascinating wrinkles for me of this year is that I reckon uh, the reason that the borders were closed um, in a way that worked really well was because uh, a lot of those early cases came from the US, but there was no way Scott Morrison was going to ban flights from the US um, because can you imagine the diplomatic backlash from Donald Trump? So I think that actually helped us. The fact that it was happened to be the US meant that we had a blanket ban to avoid embarrassing them, and that's what um, really helped to save us. So That's an interesting point. I never... Because I, I didn't actually realise uh, that he had brought it out here. For some reason, I thought he had, he'd caught it here. I'm pretty that, sure... Yeah. Or maybe his wife had it, but yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure Bruce, it arrived with right. him. But I know some people in, in uh, Sydney who, had, who got COVID early on, Yeah, when, and it was really looking like it was going to be just everywhere, and we started to get quite scared because... Mm. The friend's dad got it. A couple of friends got it, you know, skiing in America or something and on the plane. And mm-hmm. it just seemed to be sort of nibbling away everywhere. And then it turned out there weren't that many cases. And um, once the once the quarantine regime came in, we were, you know, except for Victoria, we handled it as bad as well as you could have hoped to. And that really is a Christmas miracle at this point. 
Yeah, I, well, you mentioned Victoria. Uh, while we're on the subject of, of Victoria and Australian and politics, you've included Dictator Dan oh. as a turn in the dictionary. I mean, you have to. That was so such an iconic um, oh, yeah. nickname yeah. that he was given by his many, many opponents who tried to use uh, some very unfortunate circumstances to drag him down, mm. but it didn't work. He's still very popular. He is, actually. I And I, I lived in Melbourne for many years, so mm. um, I know a lot of people there and I can sort of attest to the support that... Uh, uh, still survives for him, but I love that you, I love the definition that you've given uh, for for dictator Dan. Uh, found only in the minds of the Victorian Premier's opponents in the coalition and its media wing, News Corp. He is a dastardly character who loves extending a lockdown because it enables him to seize even more power by prolonging a state of emergency. In reality, the Dan Andrews who fronted the media every day was more of a dog-tired, depressed or defeated Dan. How, how did you feel watching the media's treatment of the Victorian Premier, in particular Sky After Dark and various <laughs> well, Murdoch Peter Credlin turned up at the press conferences and was I like, I'm going to beard the dragon in his den. Um, I didn't realise she was a, a journalist now. Well... The term is um, a complex one when it comes to Peter. I'd say more activist. I thought she was a media commentator. I just didn't realise yes. media commentators turned well, up at press conferences. Apparently, in some situations, you've got to t- you've got to put up with the commentators commenting at you. Right. And Dan Andrews said the thing of every day going and answering every question, which in some respects didn't seem like an efficient use of his time because mm. you know he had a lot to do rather mm. than spending hours talking to every single person who wanted to ask him a question. But it certainly looked transparent, I suppose. Um, and I, I don't want to minimise the debacle that um, hotel quarantine was and the bad decisions mm. that were made. Mm-hmm. But the reality is bad decisions were made all across the board. I mean, New South Wales could easily have had a, a worse situation because of the Ruby Princess. The, yeah. And I've got a quite long entry on that because I went back and looked at the story and the sort of idiocy along the way of that. But it's all about this year's shown that what you need to do is, is react, react quickly, iterate, um, evolve your um, and even to use one of my worst most hated words of twenty twenty pivot and come up with new strategies and they did that and um, I guess the thing was twenty twenty really made fools out of people mm. who tried to argue against lockdowns and I mean Sweden was held up for so many uh, months as this amazing example of freedom yet sensible COVID management no it wasn't. Um, a few weeks before the lockdown started, and I've got it in the book, the opposition leader in uh, in Victoria, whose name escapes me, um, said that it was a crazy idea to shut things down and we should just let it rip, basically. And that looked like a truly appalling position. But then he was criticising Dan Andrews throughout the whole thing. So it wasn't about the first reaction. It was about fixing your mistakes quickly and efficiently. And Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales did a very good job of that. Um, Scott Morrison learnt from the terrible bushfire response, I think. And his whole thing was leave it to the experts. And I wonder whether, as terrible as the bushfires were, they actually gave us a Prime Minister who was determined not to get blamed for not listening to experts again. And given that that wasn't his instinct, we're probably lucky that he learnt from the bushfires that, you know what? If a scientist warns you about a thing, maybe do what they say. That way no one's going to criticise you if it blows up in your face. So that that's what happened, um, thank goodness. In terms of listening to scientists, do you think that could be a theme that Scott Morrison uh, builds on going well, into... Are we seeing that happen with climate? No, not, exactly, not really, no. no. <laughs> uh, he's very upset that they've invited him to this conference. I think, um, I think Why do you though... think they haven't invited him to, to speak at the conference? Well, because he hasn't done anything substantive. I mean, right. the... The whole 
line the government seems to be taking is, you know, we're going to make our targets without even using our Kyoto credits. And no one thinks they should be allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, that is not a great argument. And other people who are getting up are saying, you know, we're going to go to zero emissions by 2050. They're talking about these huge things they're going to do to the economy. They're not engaging in sophistry. Mm. And ScoMo's gotten a long way on on spin. I mean, he's very good at it. He's, you know, well, watching him. Well, you notice he doesn't seem to, whenever anybody mentions 2050, he doesn't actually commit to 2050. He keeps saying in the second half of the century, which, I mean, that could mm. be 2019. Uh, 2099, 2099, yeah. 2099, yeah. And he pivots, doesn't he? He spins. Mm. I mean, he pirouettes. He, he dances out of the question. And he can do that in Australia, but um, the UN's not going to put up with it. So uh, in that case, yes, I mean, I think, we're back to back to usual. And the other sad thing, and this comes through in the book too, is the way in which you know the pandemic was used by the government to advance a lot of its existing priorities. I mean, there was talk of stuff for the arts. There was talk of looking after artists and actors and musicians and all these people who lost their jobs, like a lot of other people. Nothing, nothing came. I mean, really, just a tiny little, 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 too little, too late for the arts sector. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw, you know, for a brief period, unemployment benefits were actually livable. And even John Howard felt that JobSeeker was too low and urged the government to increase it. They did, and it's just on the way down again. I mean, all these issues, um, you know, defunding the ABC, which they insist isn't even happening. Um, the, the pandemic was... Uh, the tertiary education cuts are another great example. The pandemic was used as a, a pretext to make cuts they wanted to make anyway that were ideological. So... Mm-hmm. Giving ScoMo praise for acting quickly, yes, with medical stuff, absolutely. I mean, the embracing embracing of telehealth was really impressive. The fact that you can they're now going to keep that going. You can call your doctor and get a prescription without going in was great. But I wish they'd been as nimble and dynamic in other parts of the um, the economy and in, with other um, with other policy areas and priorities. And that's my little rant about the government. <laughs> But there's a lot in the gov- about it, the government in the book because they don't get a well, they actually, don't get a pass they get a pass mark no they get high marks on COVID but they don't they don't get high marks on everything. Well, no, I, I notice you've you've got a, a travel uh, recommendation actually in there. I guess for when we're all able to travel again, you've given a definition for Hawaii as the perfect tropical holiday destination where you can relax and forget about troubles at home, such as the political crisis caused by you being in Hawaii during a national emergency and your office lying about it while it wasn't even clear who was in charge of the country during your secret ab- uh, secret absence. That's a grumpy entry, isn't it? It seems oddly specific. Was this in reference to anybody oh, in particular, Dom? Just, an, just a thing that happened. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing about uh, Scott Morrison's trajectory over the past 12 months or so, is he was doing so badly he could not put a foot right. I mean, I remember at one point mapping out the different um, beats in his scandalous summer and how everything he tried just blew up in his face. You know, he said... At one point, oh, we'll get the military in. I know what we're going to do. We're going to get the military and they're going to sort it all out. Yay, the military. Wave the flag. And then then um, the Rural Fire Service Commissioner, Shane Fitzsimmons, said, couldn't you have called me about this? We don't want this. And this is a man who was basically a saint and, and you know, did a great job. Um, what terrible uh, optics that was. And so Skyma had this terrible summer. And the period where, and this this shows the instincts, the period where he left to Hawaii, sent Albo a text about it, but his office would not confirm he's out of the country or say who, who was acting prime minister. We all know that you have an acting PM when the PM goes mm. away, but they decided to sort of bluster their way through that. And I worry that politics has just gone this way. There's no real 
consequence for blustering and prevaricating and, and spinning. And as much as we call him Scotty from marketing, there's nothing that shows that he's going to pay, pay any um, political price for his, his shortcomings thus far. What role do you feel the media has in, in holding that to account? Because if you look at, I, I mean, Gladys Berejiklian gets uh, a mention, an entry in the book. That was the last entry, just squeezed in before the right. deadline about her, uh, her amazing judgment when in matters of um, you know, emergency management and poor judgment when it comes to personal, personal life choices. But they weren't exactly just personal life choices because obviously, I mean, there was much made of the of, of the actual personal relationship and it wasn't really, the problem wasn't really in the fact that she had a personal relationship with someone in politics. It was the implications of that relationship, oh, yeah. the conversations they were having, what she knew about some of the more questionable dealings that were going on. And it seems there seem to have been a number of financial scandals that have sort of erupted over the last couple of months mm. uh, to do with Gladys Berejiklian's government. But she seems to have come out quite unscathed. Yes, pretty Teflon at the moment. Yeah, and um, as has Scott Morrison. How do you feel the media are doing it, holding these guys to account? Well, I mean, I think the New South Wales press corps tried, um, and uh, it's quite baffling to think. I mean, when her good mate Barry O'Farrell, you know, lost his... Uh, right, when he resigned over the bottle of Grange. Which I suspect just slipped his memory, to be honest, and he just thought I would have remembered a bottle of Grange, but then he didn't. Um, I don't know that that was even particularly dodgy by the standards of what we've seen subsequently in in some places. But with uh, her her boyfriend, I mean, how hard is it to think that a Premier shouldn't be having anything to do with someone who's doing things which can be potentially to the interest of ICAC? And those those recordings were damning and should have raised a a red flag. And when you're telling someone, I don't need to know about that, how is that not a red flag? I mean, it's certainly pretty baffling. But um, the reality is she has been a very strong performer in, in many ways. I mean, she has, uh, whether or not you like freeways, she's done an extraordinary job on infrastructure. I mean, if you think of what the train network and the you know the bus network, all these things have just been transformed. The Opal card um, was something that she brought in before that. We were on travel tens and all kinds mm-hmm. of old things. So there's a lot of affection towards her as someone who gets the job done for many years and that's let her um, sort of stare these things down. I still can't believe that she came out the other day and said, oh, yeah, well, I mean, you call it pork barrelling. barrelling. We spend money to try and get votes. I mean, that's just normal, isn't it? And part of me goes, that's refreshingly honest. And then another part of me goes, that can't be normal. This isn't the way it's supposed to work. There's got to be a standard. So, I mean, we're now getting to the point where we have natural where we have natural Liberal government in New South mm-hmm. Wales and federally, where it takes a lot for them to lose. And um, Labor doesn't seem able to lay a glove on them, no matter what the scandals. So I really think, as with any long-term government, they're beginning to get a bit cocky, and perhaps that will be their undoing, but certainly isn't this year. It's an interesting prediction, actually. Do you think possibly it could be... Do you think Trumpism has sort of spread here somewhat? Because, you know, it would seem that he was quite quite Teflon in, in, in that sense. And if you look 
at the beginning of your career in media back in 1999, you know, you were one of seven guys who formed uh, the comedy group The Chaser. Yeah, seven, seven white guys. That would never happen now. One of them was Italian. <laughs> was that, yeah, exactly. And you decided to produce a, a newspaper in an attempt not to grow up. And you went exactly. on to write and star in, in The Election Chaser and CNN and Nant. What? How many N's was in that? Four. Four? Four. Right. And what did that stand for? Chaser Nonstop News Network. Right. But we counted the two N's in non. Right. Okay. <laughs> to, to, just to confuse people. Everyone um, called it CNN and NNN. I do remember that. Well, look, they were programs that many of us grew up watching or we came of age to, and it really informed and developed our own appetite for satire. But do you think, as a satirist, that Trump has really made satire somewhat redundant? There's a lot of discussions about this. I've read quite a bit about how Americans think about this, and it, it's interesting because sort of two two contradictory things are true and Mm. one of them is that you can't really use the technique of exaggeration i mean that's the thing donald trump all the jokes that people might have made about the terrible things he would do and that you know not leaving the white house i'd read today that he's seriously thinking about just not leaving Mm. you can't comically exaggerate what he does the simpsons did a joke about him being president and having an economic failure i mean here we go. It was just prescient. It wasn't exaggerated. Um, but at the same time, it has been a golden age for the comedy of telling the truth with a joke. So I always think that with comedy, there's a whole bunch of ways you can make things funny. And um, comic exaggeration is certainly one of the to- the tools of satire, exaggeration that shows the truth of something. But um, rather than doing that, satirists and, and people like Stephen Colbert um, – Ralph Myers uh, and um, Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, they've they've mm-hmm. done incredible, incredibly well with, um, sorry, Seth Myers and Jimmy Kimmel. Yes, they've done an amazing job of just telling you the news. So I watch those programs religiously because they actually tell you what's happening. They show you the clips, and then there's jokes about it. But they're not they're not exaggerated jokes the way that you know in the Bush era. The, the Stephen Colbert character and the Colbert Report would do. So it's a different kind of comedy. And I think it's been an amazing period for comedy. You know, people like, you know, particularly, you know, Myers and Colbert, I don't know how they're going to cope with a Biden government because as funny as Colbert's Biden impression is becoming, it's it's just going to be dull. It's going to be competent to some degree, probably not very progressive. It's just going to keep things ticking along. Um, it's not going to be this outlandish grandiose, semi-dictatorish, you know, someone who really wants to be a dictator but can't quite get his act together to organise it. Um, You know, Donald Trump would never, ever make trains, you know, run on time. time. Um, So I I think comedy will have to to, to react to that. But it's certainly true that um, governments you don't like are a great, uh, I guess, breeding ground for this stuff. The Chaser began under John Howard and um, really came out of frustration Mm-hmm. Um, with some of the things that were going on. I mean, we're all you know, students and the VSU campaign, voluntary student, unionism, un- voluntary student unionism, which is kind of not a cause anyone really thinks about anymore, um, that was huge for us and part of what we were worried about. Then the war came, uh, the Iraq war, and mm-hmm. we, we were very much outraged about that and the chaser and did a lot of stuff on it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think satire is a great, tool when you're outraged and angry and um but rather than being earnest you want to try and direct that into humor how that will evolve in the post-trump period i'm not sure but political ridiculousness is pretty much a given so even in uh the government of someone like biden who's competent and experienced 
I'm sure enough stuff ups will happen to give comedians something to work with. Circling a little bit back to uh, some of uh, what you've included in the book, we were just referencing the Murdoch media on that subject. Uh, you've given Rupert's son, James Murdoch, a mention with two different explanations. Well, the thing about James, which um, I mean, I, I've, I've always do those things where there's like any dictionary, there's sort of multiple definitions. Yeah. And one of them is, you know, is sort of um, the, the, the terrible figure behind phone hacking, you mm. know, when he ran the... Uh, UK news offshoot and all the tabloids. Mm. And then the second one is the principled hero who resigned from his family company because he couldn't take the climate change coverage. Mm. So, I mean, he's a, he's like many public figures, he contains multitudes, that man. I don't really know what to make of him. But, um, yeah, he's really just just um, burned his family. It's I spent a lot of this year watching the show Succession and um, it's oh, yes. looking pretty similar at this stage. Art imitating life. Or life imitating art, possibly. They influence each other. It's a constant interplay. Yeah, yeah. While we're on the subject of, of the Murdochs and, and, and News Corp, you, you yourself used to be a regular on Paul Murray Live. Yes. Which is, of course, a, a staple of Sky News's After Dark programming. Uh, that was, of course, in the days when Sky Australia was owned by a consortium of different news media. Um, for instance, the Nine Network owned a stake. Uh, have you yourself seen a change in the sort of content coming out of Sky in the years since Nine pulled their stake in the company? It would seem that Sky now behaves in a manner that suggests uh, they are less answerable. I mean, it would it would appear that it, it is Rupert's you know, political and ideological agenda that's uh, getting served and, and, and put forward uh, from Sky's opinion shows like Paul Murray and like Andrew Bolt and Peter Credlin and all those um, wonderful characters. Sky News was owned, yes, by I think it was a consortium of News mm-hmm. Seven and Nine, actually. So they only had a third of it at the time, and but it was effectively controlled, I think, by News. So it was right. very much a news organ, and from the get go, they had a lot of people from the Australian and all that kind of thing. So right, I mean, Paul so it was Murray, always very Murdoch. Yes, it yeah. was it, yeah. definitely. They, they didn't really do the whole Fox News opinion journalism mm-hmm. thing back then. Mm-hmm. And um, Paul Murray is a guy that I knew at Triple M. He was the late night host, and he was great fun. He was an award-winning journalist. He mm. won Walkleys, I think, uh, and various other awards, and certainly commercial radio awards for journalism. Um, I think at Nova, and he was at, he worked with us at Triple M, and we really enjoyed hanging out with him. Actually watched a few political debates with him back in the day uh, in the US election because he's right. a big US mm-hmm. uh, obsessive. And, um, yeah, I went on his show in the early days. He would just ring mates and get them to come on. So I went on every two weeks for, for several years. And back in those days, it was a very uh, balanced panel. You had people like Peter Fitzsimons on there waving the, the lefty flag. Um, and I, I tried to do what I could here and there, arguing against various people. Um, but I mean, his style, and he would be, he would acknowledge this. His style has changed. And uh, I read something in Media Week from him earlier this week saying that they keep expanding his monologue because that's what people like most. And so he's evolved into this uh, creature of the opinion universe. And um, look, I don't share his politics, but um, he's been very successful, and that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly is is quite high rating, and so he's found an audience for what he does. I like the funny guy who I used to hang out with late at night on Triple M, and Chaz and I once um, live-edited his Wikipedia page and made it incredibly insulting, and he loved that. And so, you know, whenever I see him, I, I have a good laugh with him. But um, his show, let's just say his show is not entirely in my, um, you know, 
I'm not one of those who watch his show and uh, and and stridently agree with everything that he says. Let's just say that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to be a mimicry of the Alan Jones playbook, I guess. I mean, in the last number of years, Sky have really divested away from being a, a serious contender when it comes to straight, accurate news. And from yeah. Sort of, uh, oh, absolutely, and. It's proved popular. I mean, Alan Jones mm. um, is, is a good example. But one thing I read recently, which is quite extraordinary, is that the audience that they have on Facebook is massive. And so you see people like mm. Randa Devine now being a big part of the US election process and was part of the whole attempt to smear Joe Biden over Hunter Biden's laptops mm-hmm. and everything, which, uh, interestingly, that story seems to be continue to be evolving at the moment um, and with a federal investigation going on. And so who knows what, what they'll find. But this whole kind of Australian version of the Murdoch opinion juggernaut has really just um, gone global in the past past year or so. You see, even people like Chris Kenny, who is barely a big figure even by our standards, and the chaser had the odd tussle with him back in the day. I probably can't legally go too far into that. I think we, we'd have some <laughs> settlement with him. But um, yeah, I mean, people like him, who just really are not, not major figures, let's be frank. Sorry, Chris. Um, are now quite big online. Peter Credlin having been Mm -hmm. a staffer who really, not even her colleagues thought much of. I mean, she and Tony Abbott um, wrecked themselves in in under two years, you know, and got voted out by their colleagues. So from from that to having a nightly TV show is quite extraordinary. And it's very niche. It will always be very niche, but they've managed to make a go of it. I don't have a problem with people, um, you know, finding a voice for opinions that are extreme that I disagree with. It's just, it's the misrepresentation and it's when they start smearing people that I start to worry. And that does happen increasingly, which is a shame. Do you have any thoughts on former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's petition for a a royal commission into the Murdoch media? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, he and Malcolm Turnbull, and there was no love lost between them. Strange bedfellows. Malcolm opposed his, um, you know, being nominated for the UN Secretary General, which was a really, it's quite slack things too, really, when you look at the red carpet being rolled, up, rolled out for Matthias Gorman, who really, you know, I don't think um, has a huge huge CV versus Kevin, but um, they make a good point about the the influence, and they both courted the Empire when they were trying to get to be PM. I mean, Kevin Wright absolutely did that, but you have to, and that's kind of the problem. So you, you're meant to have in society these kind of elders who've finished their time you know, in public life and now can now speak freely. Paul Keating's been doing it for years, mm-hmm. descending from their, you know, retirement ivory towers and, and giving us some hard advice. And, and Rudd has been doing this. He also travels around giving handballs to kids in school. I don't know what that's about, but apparently kids in school love getting a handball signed by Kevin Rudd. Do they? Like a rubber ball. Yeah, someone I know who used to work with him was telling me this has been a huge thing. Like you just go to the schools and people love seeing him. So go figure. He's always been an eccentric man. But there is a problem, absolutely, when 70% of newspapers are owned by by one company. Uh, when you have in places like Queensland, there's virtually no other um, really outlets in that state, certainly not print ones. And print isn't what it used to be, but when you combine that with um, this television channel that they've got putting out points of view uh, and you know the other interests that they've got, it, it's a real juggernaut and it definitely plays a role. And we now see, I and mean, I talk about the, the news slash liberal slash national coalition, but I think that's increasingly a reality where 
they just seem to have the same message sheets. And that that isn't ideal. I mean, again, it's a democracy. You know, it's a contest of ideas. But I don't, uh, you know, it doesn't make me feel comfortable to see how cosy um, they've become with the government because, you know, to some degree, journos are meant to hold these people to account. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it when Mike Baird, the former premier, was in an ad for the Daily Telegraph. He was actually in an ad on a train reading the telly. And that's the telly's job is to kick Mike Baird when he needs it, not to roll him out for the ad campaigns. Mm-hmm. So I don't think uh, that's appropriate at all. And particularly at the point where people like Foxtel are getting big grants from the government to broadcast sports that they don't then go on to even broadcast. So this is something that needs to be looked at. There probably won't be a Royal Commission with any real teeth, but well, actually, no, there's going to be a Senate inquiry. There's going to be a Senate inquiry, going to be. Yeah. So that will be interesting. I think in the fullness of time, the Murdoch Empire will will be broken up and um, there will be so many sources that it won't really matter to the same degree. But at the moment, yeah, it's not hugely ideal for our democracy, I think. And it wasn't like this in the past. There's never been... That's what I was going to ask. When you you sort of got into media and satire and and, and you talk about... That was the chaser was really born out of frustration and 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 anger. Mm. And this is in you know the late nineties. And look at what we've achieved in terms of changing the <laughs> politics in Australia. Nothing at all. Um, but, how, but how has it changed from from those those days back in the late nineties when you know Paul Keating had just sort of been ousted, John Howard was in, Peter Costello, and you know we. It, John Howard did seem to be that um, there was that seismic shift I feel in this country when John Howard did come in as Prime Minister. Oh, absolutely! And it's opened a public dialogue that's never really quite gone away, uh, and the sort of identity politics, the you know the huge clashes uh, from both sides, uh, both sides. What differences have you seen in the last twenty years? Well, I mean, gosh, it's a it's a period of time. Uh, John Howard was, of course, the last Prime Minister who lasted, um, which mm. is interesting. And that, that, in hindsight, looks like a remarkable achievement. But we've seen, I mean, there's a whole, and far wiser people than I have charted the way in which Pauline Hanson came up mm-hmm. and had much of her message adopted by the coalition government. Mm-hmm. Um, the rhetoric of us and them and keeping people out. And, mm-hmm. okay, in the case of the Howard government, it was, it was sort of couched in this notion of inverted commas illegals, even though it's not legal mm-hmm. to seek asylum anywhere. And that these were people who were desperate, who were being turned away on the tamper and things like that. And that the children overboard thing was a lie. Mm-hmm. But demonising people who aren't inverted commas like us is a playbook that really our government was doing in that way long before Donald Trump started doing it. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea of being relaxed and comfortable and us and them and people being labelled as un-Australian, that continues to this day and it ties in with with the kind of messaging and the kind of people that Murdoch, the Murdoch Empire has. I mean, Andrew Bolt will will write about that stuff endlessly. The demonisation of of refugees in in Melbourne and generally when it gets looked into, we find out that those stories weren't true. Um, There are all kinds of examples of that if if I could have the moment to look them up. Um, It's not, I don't think it's a great, civil society. I think we need to um, be inclusive. I think that immigration and multiculturalism has been an extraordinary gift to this country and to allow to just have fine people like Matthias Coleman coming in. But, I mean, really, uh, that's been... You can now a- represent us in oh, the OECD. Yeah. Well, and they'll be so surprised <laughs> when he doesn't sound Australian. But, yeah, I mean... <laughs> This country is at its best when we include people and lift each other up and have a diversity of people. When we have a strong Indigenous voice and this idea of a voice to Parliament is something to be celebrated and encouraged. That's the Australia that we should be a confident, um, you know, 
inclusive place with a lot of voices and, and diversity. And in some ways, we've come a long way towards that. You know, our um, people who are on TV are far more diverse than they used to be. We've still got a long way to go. But I don't know. I just think there's just been this post-Howard torpor. And ScoMo seems like far more like John Howard than Tony Abbott was too. Mm. Tony Abbott was m- much more extreme than John Howard. Mm. And this idea that your ordinary Aussies just you know, in their quarter acre block and they're happy and they've got a mortgage but it's all right and it's under control and, and they wouldn't mind having a beer with the bloke in charge because he's a good Aussie bloke. And Keating the Musical savaged this stuff beautifully when it came to John Howard and the mateship and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's worth, if you haven't heard that, it's on Spotify. I think you can go and listen to Keating the Musical. But... Um, we're all I, great fans of that here at uh, it's, at Two It's very good, yes. <laughs> but that 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 version of Australia is not one that I'm mm. in love with, and have tried to make fun of in all of these books, Australia Australiapedia and the Australian Dictionary that I did. The Ocker blokiness, mm-hmm. and the best part of Australia is when we make fun of those in power and cut them down, as you know, cut them down to size. Not when we celebrate them and pretend that we're all the same, because we're not, and we shouldn't try to be. Well, lastly, you've included, I want to go to a definition that you've included in the dictionary, uh, 2021, a mythical far-off time when we tell ourselves everything will be better, despite there being no rational reason to expect the year not to be even worse than 2020. What are your predictions for the next 12 months? Well, the hope is that it will be the year of vaccines, um, right. 2021. It, the hope is that science will, will out. And I mean... We didn't know this at the time when I wrote the book, but the efficacy of the vaccines, as far as we can tell at this point, is remarkable and a stunning achievement. And it turns out that a lot of the technology that we already had in place was fine. I mean, one of the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, I think they'd basically finished it in twenty in forty eight hours or something like that. Once they had the DNA of the of of the of of the um, SARS CoV two virus. So I hope that things will return to normal. Well, actually, anti-vaxxers will be science forever because the vaccine will have saved us all. And then we'll start trusting science and experts a little bit more. We'll open the borders and go back to being a, a world which, where you can fly overseas at the top of a hat and hang out and have friends everywhere. And that we'll, we'll stop becoming, you know, Fortress Australia and this island nation that doesn't want other people to come. And it's been great in terms of COVID, but it's not a good mentality. So let's hope it's the big reboot, really, and that we can, and perhaps an upgrade, perhaps one of those reboots where you install some new software and make things a bit better, because we could use that too. Dominic Knight, thanks so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Thanks for listening.